Behind the Bite podcast is part of a network of podcasts that are good for the world. Check out podcasts like the Full of Shit podcast, After the First Marriage podcast, and Eating Recovery Academy over at practiceofthepractice.com backslash network. Welcome to Behind the Bite podcast. This podcast is about the real life struggles women face with food, body image, and weight. We're here to help heal, inspire, and create better, healthier lives. Welcome. Well, hello, everyone. You know, thank you for all of you loyal and consistent listeners and subscribers to the show. You know, I sometimes record the show and I have no idea who's out there listening and what you're thinking. So it really does mean a lot to me when you rate and review and subscribe to the show, like on Apple Podcasts. And I also really appreciate when you comment on my social media posts or send me a question or personal message about the show. And so I got to thinking the other day that because some of you do take the time to reach out, that I want to acknowledge you. Now, I don't do this show because I'm making any money or profit off of it. I really just do it solely for anyone out there who's listening, because I'm hoping that I can spread the correct information and awareness about eating disorders and dispel any myths that are contributing to the toxic diet culture that's out there. And really just to help anyone out there who's struggling so you know you're not alone and really to give you the hope that you can absolutely recover. So if you are here listening, which absolutely means the world to me, I want you to know that I want to know what you want and need to hear on here. Because after all, this podcast really is for you. So message me. Let me know what you think of the show. Ask me questions. You know, I'm going to start each show with your comments and your questions. So if you have something on your mind, let me know. And I found out that there's this nifty new voice message website, and I'm going to leave the link here on the show notes. And I want to message it, mention it here. Um, It's www.speakpipe.com backslash behind the bite. So you can go on there and you can actually voice record a message for me and just leave your question, leave your comments. And like I said, I want to hear what you have to say, and I'm going to start mentioning these things on the show. So um, this is kind of exciting for me to start doing that. But that being said, we are here today. And I don't know about you guys, but if someone would have told me three years ago that I would be sitting here today living my day-to-day life the way that I am, I probably would have looked at them like they had 10 heads. And you know what? Maybe your life hasn't changed as dramatically as mine has. But then again, that might be because I work in a field that has forever transformed as a result of the pandemic. And I know that is the case for so many of us who are mental health providers. And now that it has been some time since the start of the pandemic, I have with us today a guest who is here to reflect on and discuss more about how mental health awareness and treatment has been affected and more specifically, get into a discussion about eating disorders in the pandemic. In her role as Chief Clinical Officer for Alsana, Heather Russo is responsible for nurturing the growth and success of their clinical treatment teams and maintaining the integrity and efficacy of their adaptive care model's therapeutic dimension. Heather has served as a clinician and clinical leader in eating disorder treatment for 15 years. 
Most recently, before joining Asana in 2020, Heather served as the Regional Assistant Vice President of a multi-site national eating disorder treatment provider, where she focused on clinical consistency and the implementation of evidence-based practices. Heather has been a chair of several well-known associations, including the International Association of Eating Disorder Professionals in the Los Angeles chapter, and between work, school, and three kids at home, including four-year-old twins, Heather says she doesn't have an abundance of free time, but she absolutely loves what she does. Well, Heather, welcome to the show. Thank you so much for having me. I'm excited to have this conversation with you. I am too. I have not uh, had this topic on and I know it's a big one. Um, So let's kind of just get into it. Like what have you seen, uh, you know, during the pandemic and and yes, even now, uh, you know, at Alsana with eating disorders or just in general, like what, what's your take on things? Yeah. What do we make of all this? Right. Um, you know, I think it's interesting when I, when I take sort of a macro look and and look back, I think about almost, you know, sort of pre COVID and where we were as a treatment industry and how ready were we to begin with. Um, and I think that there were, you know, there were a couple companies that were offering virtual treatment for eating disorders. Several companies I think had some online support for, for individuals that were struggling, whether they be sort of community kind of support groups or alumni groups but there was not a proliferation of uh, virtual eating disorder services, you know, from the the provider end Mm -hmm. going into the pandemic. And so, um, you know, we sort of had this convergence of a lot of companies probably having initial conversations around what would a virtual program look like, um, beginning to flesh all that out. And, you know, uh, March, you know, whatever, 17th of 2020, really needing to figure it out. Mm-hmm. Um, and so, you know, I, I sort of think about when the pandemic hit, there were folks who were mid-treatment. There were folks that were, um, you know, nearing the end of their treatment or that were uh, sort of an early recovery post-treatment. And then folks that were kind of cruising along just fine and then were hit with all of the stressors and all of the dynamics that the pandemic brought. And the the clinical picture looks really different for each of those kinds of um, groups of folks, you know, the ones that we uh, probably you and I both, you know, as, as providers during all of this, um, there was the sort of initial, I don't know, surprise for all of us, you know, even as, as clinicians and providers of how do we manage to support the folks that we are wanting to support while we're also struggling through ourselves and our families are, um, you know, dealing with new patterns and rituals and, uh, you know, all of the uncertainty and um, the stress that all of that brought. So I think, you know, in all honesty, I think that there are probably a lot of, uh, a lot of sort of uh, outcomes of what we went through, even, even in 2020, that we're still not going to fully appreciate until even later than now, you know, we're still sort of sorting through all of this. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, I, I think that there's a lot to kind of like parse out there, but but certainly we're still looking at the um, the impact of all of this from the both the provider side and the client side. Right. So, I mean, you bring up so many interesting like points here that we could delve into, but I'm just curious, you know, when that all hit, um, patients that were being seen, obviously, in like 
different levels of care in person, were they forced to no longer be seen in person because of the, you know, pandemic and because of maybe some restrictions that were placed on people being around each other or what happened there? Yeah, I feel really proud of the way Alsana specifically handled it, which is that we didn't skip a beat. So we got plexiglass and masks and sanitizer and we distanced and we never we never closed our doors for our brick and mortar programs. Now, I know not every treatment program or treatment provider had that luxury. Mm. Um, we we had the, the infrastructure to be able to do that and feel really, really grateful for that. Um, and so we've operated brick and mortar through the whole pandemic. Oh, wow. um, and that's been a, a heavy lift. And also, you know, we've learned things along the way, as all of us have, right? What works, what doesn't work, what's practical and what's not. Um, how do you quarantine folks? How do you, you know, just all of the, you know, how do you, um, how do you support somebody while they're in quarantine? I mean, I don't know if, if you've had to quarantine, but uh, I've had to, and it is pretty brutal. And I'm a relatively well-adjusted uh, adult, you know, right. pretty stable with the good supports and all of that. So yeah, there's just been a lot of learning, um, learning that that Alsana has done, and certainly all of us in the field have done. But we we were able to both keep our in-house brick and mortar programs running, um, and also develop virtually overnight uh, a virtual PHP and IOP program. And uh, we were able to do that in uh, in lockstep with each other. So we were sort of you know battening down the hatches in terms of protocols and whatnot for our, our COVID protocols in-house. And then also developing a, a national virtual treatment program, which was a, a really fun, creative challenge that was really hard. Yeah, <laughs> wow. Hard. Yeah. Yeah, a whole new way of, of thinking about providing treatment, right? I mean, you know, and, and as, you know, as a therapist, I was always trained about, you know, boundaries, boundaries, boundaries. And here we are now doing treatment in somebody's bedroom. And what, you know, like these sort of practicalities that you, you want to be, you want to show up for folks and be helpful and create a a program that, uh, you know, is going to best support them, whether they are afraid to be in brick and mortar programs, they can't, uh, uh, travel or they're nervous to travel or, you know, they're having to quarantine and so not able to get, so it's just, there are all these different, um, you know, stresses on our clients and we really wanted to meet clients where they were at. And that's a, that's a sort of the core Alsana, um, sort of foundational, uh, philosophy that we really do try to meet our clients where they're at. And so that meant sometimes in their bedrooms and sometimes at their family dining room with, you know, cats walking by and whatnot, but it also afforded us the opportunity to do some really cool interventions um, that were that we wouldn't have been able to do in an in-person program. And so that part has been really cool. And from a the the thing that gives me a lot of joy is both you know sort of ho- helping to uh, sustain and grow access to care, but also being able to do it in folks' real life worlds, you know, and and you know going into the kitchen with them uh, on their laptop and looking in the cabinet with them and and walking through, you know, what is it like to look at this box of cereal right now? Like, let's hold it up. This is your box of cereal. Let's talk about it. So those have been really cool. I think, um, yeah, opportunities, silver linings, although there weren't, there haven't been many, but those are some. Yeah. I'm curious. Like, I mean, that, that alone, just being able to do different types of things that you can't do when they're at Elsana, right. Um, Were there other things that you found that, were surprised that 
helped or worked that you hadn't done before? Yeah. One of the other silver linings was, uh, you know, the barrier to access support of others and family members, you know, the, the reluctance and the avoidance that typically shows up with clients, not wanting to involve a uh, support of others that kind of became a non-issue because if mom or dad or spouse or roommate is in the next room over, um, we're not having to deal with the back and forth and the avoidance and all of that. And we can kind of strike while the iron toss that the client is willing in that moment to involve somebody else as we all want them to do. We're able to capture that motivation in that moment rather than that sort of back and forth of scheduling emails and all of that stuff where, where avoidance can kind of tend to crop up a little bit and uh, the, the process would get kind of halted. So that part of things, I think, has also been a pretty cool um, silver lining of the whole thing. Yeah. So, you know, like I, I had a different experience because I was I'm in private practice and not, at, you know, at a facility. Right. But I I freaked out, too, because I had only been trained to do in-person therapy. Right. And so I couldn't see the person except for the shoulders up. And, you know, with the eating disorders, that was really kind of scary for me. Like, I'm not going to see their whole person. I can't see their body language. I can't see if they're shaking. I can't, I can't see so many things about what's going on uh, in the person I'm working with. So um, I'm wondering for you, was that something that kind of went through your mind as well? Like, Oh, well, the practicalities of it too, Christina. So we were, we, we learned, we learned nearly all things the hard way. I'm going to be really honest about that. Mm-hmm. Uh, so, you know, we, we learned the hard way that clients could very easily shovel food off of their plate down to the dog. And we wouldn't recognize that that was happening, <laughs> you know? So, okay. So now we have to do kind of um, check-ins with the food. We, um, we, at first, we're going to try to figure out how to incorporate outpatient providers more. We found these miracle inventions, these scales that don't actually show numbers on them. Um, they just report into like an electronic medical uh, record system so that clients can get on the scale. We can send the scale out. The clients get on the scale. They're not seeing their weight. So we, we've found some workarounds for things that are, yeah, that are risky or problematic when you're not in a brick and mortar facility. Mm-hmm. Um you know, we've had to have some pretty structure, structured expectations around how clients are showing up to treatment that you're not, you know, horizontal in bed with a laptop, uh, you know, sort of resting on your chest that you're sort of, uh, uh, sitting up and, you know, alert and have an appropriate environment around you and helping clients to create the the environment with which they're zooming in was really helpful too, because we were, you know, all of us were segueing into this virtual life. And so all of us were having to learn how to set boundaries, time boundaries for ourselves, space boundaries for ourselves, um, so that we can participate meaningfully. A lot of our clients, of course, are students. And so they were also being able to use those skills, you know, transferring those to their academic life too, which was cool to see. Um, so that was sort of an added benefit of being able to help uh, help clients sort of acclimate to all of these changes that were going on. So, you know, from my, my end as an outpatient therapist, I saw such a change in the number of and, and severity of eating disorder um, patients. And um, also just the, the lack of ability to get them into a higher level of care. Um, and I'm wondering for you, like being on in the higher level of care arena, um, what was that like for you? What did you experience? Yeah. Yeah, it was really, it was, it was awful. You know, we had wait lists that we couldn't accommodate and having to triage some of that was really brutal. Um, 
recognizing that we had to change the way that we were approaching clients because the things that we would ordinarily be asking them to reach out for extra support weren't available to them. Mm-hmm. You know, so it was no longer go to a friend's house. It was no longer go for a walk with a loved one. It was no longer, you know, it was there were no, there were no longer all of these things or even distract yourself with work or academics or, you know, there wasn't the sort of, we had to learn how to how to draw on um, what was available. And you remember what was available at the time was very little. And, and I think, you know, especially with eating disorders, the, the uncertainty, the fears of uh, what it feels like to sort of not be in control and to not have the things at, at one's fingertips that they had used to help regulate their own emotionality aside from the eating disorder was really, really challenging and so we had to, in some, in some, you know, ways, almost sort of recalibrate what our expectations were because we couldn't ask somebody to go to the grocery store as an experiential. So how do you recreate some of that stuff, you know, or if somebody's in our treatment programs, how do you incentivize folks who are, you know, in, ambivalent at best about being in treatment with a outing when there's no such thing as outings? Um, and so there was a lot of retooling and I think it it had us as clinicians and as um, providers doing a little soul searching around, you know, how do we, how do we at least try our absolute hardest to make this uh, treatment as effective as it would have been pre pandemic. And I think, you know, we use the, the sort of gold standard eating disorder uh, exam questionnaire, the EDQ as sort of a, a, a measurement of how our clients are doing both at admission and discharge. And feel really fortunate that we still saw the same level of recovery happening in our programs, whether they're brick and mortar virtual through the pandemic, you know, we're still in it. And, um, and that to me is the greatest indicator that we, we did things the best we possibly could, and they turned out to be enough, you know, which is a really, I think, heartening feeling for, for us as providers that we were able to figure this out and pivot enough that people were still able to achieve recovery in our programs, even with all of the modifications we've had to make. So, you know, if, if you sit back and kind of think about maybe why there was so many more people coming forward with eating disorders, uh, behaviors and symptoms, did you guys sit back as a, you know, clinic and kind of go, why, why is it happening? Like, why so much now? Yeah. Yeah. You think about some of the the unique features of an eating disorder, right? So self-monitoring, huge one. Mm-hmm. Um, anxiety, huge one, social isolation, uh, over fixation on food, over fixation on body, you know, even dovetailing into increased social media use, right. Where there's all these social comparisons going on. Um, so all of that, that I think is, is so important to, to consider when we're thinking about eating disorders and that, that huge uptick that we've seen in prevalence. And then you also have all of the depression and anxiety that are precursors to eating disorders being that much more ramped up. Mm-hmm. And so we know that eating disorders happen as a uh, as an attempt to regulate oneself, right? One's own emotionality. And if, if you're staying within that window of tolerance and you're kind of cruising along just fine, you don't need an eating disorder. Mm-hmm. Um, but if you're predisposed to anxiety or depression, or you're not, and this has just thrown you into, you know, increased anxiety and depression, an eating disorder, uh, along with substance use and self-harm and, you know, all of those kinds of, um, disorders, we know that there's going to be an uptick, right? That's a very, uh, predictable pathway for a lot of folks. Um, and, you know, when you think about aggregate uh, populations and so 
it's of no surprise, but it's also just really heartbreaking because the the access to care has not been able to keep up with the need. And so we're seeing, especially, I mean, if I'm honest, the the, the adolescent population is tremendously underserved and, and Alsana, we don't even treat adolescent, you know, this is, I think, a, um, a call to arms for, for adolescent providers that can increase care. But, you know, Alsana is one of the few programs that does treat all, ge- all genders that treats vegan clients. You know, there are there are sort of populations of folks who really don't have the access to care that they need. Um, and that's been for all of us. You know, I'm, I'm sure those of you guys working at lower levels of care are struggling to figure out where to place somebody when their needs are exceeding what you can offer at an outpatient basis. It's a really, really tremendously difficult place to be in. Right. I mean, yeah, the more providers, the better. And, you know, specialists are hard to come by. Right. Um, that alone too. And, um, like I'm wondering for you for finding people to, you know, discharge your patients to, was that also a challenge? Yeah. Especially when, you know, psychiatry specialists, um, like support groups and whatnot, you know, I mean, it's just, it's harder to find these kinds of resources. Um, and I think it's also, I mean, I don't know if you're saying this, but what, what I've seen too, is that, um, you know, there's also sort of a, a different kind of reluctance to step into higher levels of care too. So you have this need um, and there is an access issue, but then there's also uh, an ambivalence piece because folks have missed out on so much life mm-hmm. over the last couple of years. And so to check back out of life in order to pursue a higher level of care after they've already given up so much, after we've all given up so much, that's a really tough sell too. And so I think that there's, you know, I don't want to not include that as part of the conversation too, that even though access is an issue, the motivation to to pick up and uproot to go pursue higher levels of care is also, you know, a, a, a real barrier. Um, so I, with that, do you find that people are more open now since the pandemic to wanting to do virtual treatment than they've ever been before? Do you think that that's something people are really kind of hesitant to do? Like, what, where's your... Where do you think people are at with that? Yeah. You know, I have an interesting sort of take on this, which is that, um, you know, I think that the generation that of folks that we tend to treat in eating disorder treatment programs, right? So eating disorder treatment programs, for better or for worse, they tend to be a younger crowd. Uh, there's definitely outliers, thank goodness. You know, we have the, uh, some variety in age and gender and all of that. But, you know, we tend to see a lot of young people and these are young people who have grown up in front of screens, and so, you know, we can we can sort of lament some of the impact of social media and, and electronics use and all of that. But these are also generations that are used to receiving services or engaging in a way that feels authentic and meaningful in front of a screen. And so we've seen that as a as a bit of a payoff now, you know, for our uh, older clients, that's not necessarily something that they're going to necessarily, you know, that's not what they've been raised with. We've seen some great successes in um, in all age groups, but I, I do think that that's been a, an important piece. And there's also the payer piece. You know, I think insurance companies recognize that uh, higher levels of care within the uh, virtual space, there's a demand for that. You know, rather than wasting two hours coming and going on the freeway back and forth to a treatment program, uh, clin- or, uh, clients are wanting to be able to integrate it, integrate mental health services into their day to day life, which I love. 
I think that's so beautiful, you know, and if that means that somebody gets to go to treatment that wouldn't ordinarily be able to go to treatment because they don't have that commute time, Mm -hmm. I just think what a, what a brilliant way, right. To, to proliferate care for those that need it. Right. And you know, just as you're talking, I'm wondering too, if, if it's beneficial for families too, because I know when I talk to families about higher levels of care, they just go, gosh, you know, I don't, I can't imagine like one of us as the, if it's a, you know, adolescent or a child, um, one of us as parents, like staying at a place near the residential center or, you know, that's a big ask for families. That's a big stressor. Um, and I'm wondering if you found that offering the virtual treatment was kind of something people were like, oh, that sounds so much better. Yeah. Absolutely. And, and, and I think for some folks, it's so stressful. Let's say the PHP level of care, mm-hmm. you know, to balance a PHP program with a job or school. And if you're, if you're kind of having to go back and forth, you know, that is, that's the opposite of what for, for our clients, right? That's just more stress and more sort of hustle and bustle and, and less self-care. So yeah, there've been some folks that have really benefited from that and it's not for everybody. And, and we know that. And of course we still offer brick and mortar programs, you know, at all the levels of care and all of our facilities, but um, we, we definitely recognize that for folks who are interested in those services, that they can be really, really beneficial. We see great clinical outcomes from those clients. And it's just been a real, um, I think a, a real eye opener, you know, especially for eating disorders. I don't know that there were, I think even in my own mind, if I'm honest, you know, prior to COVID, I was uncertain about how that was going to go with eating disorders specifically. We were always sort of the unique snowflake of mental health of like, no, we have to eat with our clients and we have to see what they're eating and what their portions are. And we have to be, you know, to your point, seeing them, you know, below their shoulders to make sure that they're not, uh, you know, having significant weight changes so that we can help to um, assess how they're doing. But we have found that there's just a a shift in how we can operate and um, hold clients accountable and also support them. And, cultivate a, a, you know, a, a feel of sort of honesty and a, a culture of um, accountability on clients' parts and, and also on this, their support systems. You know, we've, we've learned to lean on support systems more than we had probably previously in the past. Right. I, I mean, if, I don't know about you, but if someone had asked you pre-pandemic, oh, do you think that virtual therapy or, or virtual, like, higher level of care treatment is going to be a thing that is going to stick. What would you have said? You know, I had some, I had some faith in knowing that this is the direction we're all going to be going in. Right. So the ultimately, but the speed at which we had to ramp all this up is, you know, I, I don't think anybody could have predicted this, but, but also the ingenious ways. I mean, if I'm, you know, I want to give credit where credit's due. Our clinicians have invented this thing. You know, they're the ones, the ones that are meeting with the clients day in, day out and trying new things and and navigating these challenges and barriers in the moment. Um, they're the ones that have perfected this thing. Mm-hmm. And the creativity, uh, what is it? Necessity is the the birthplace right of creativity. So I think that there's been a um a real sort of joy in watching our clinicians navigate this. And I, they've, you know thought of things that I never would have thought of in a million years. And this is my, you know, I've been doing this for you know, a decade and a half at this point. So I've just been really impressed by all of that too. And the, the motivation to continue to evolve to meet that need as well. And I, I, you know, I really love what you said. The outcomes were good, you know, like 
because you don't know when you start something different and new, like what on earth is going to happen? It's a little scary, right? Like doing something totally different that you've never done before. Like, oh gosh, I hope this is just as effective or helpful or worth it or, you know, what's going to happen here. Yeah. Yeah. And that's, you know, we have to be data driven because we have to be honest with ourselves, right? About about what's actually happening because we can have a, a felt sense that people are getting better, but unless we're collecting good clinical data, uh, we can't really be accountable to our clients. And so we've done just that and we've continued to see really, really tremendous um, outcomes. So that's been a real joy and relief. Right. So, you know, if anyone's listening and they're thinking, oh, I would never want to do like virtual treatments or I'm really kind of scared about it. It seems a little daunting or not something I'd be into. Is there any like real benefits that you see for someone who might be a little hesitant to to try it? Yeah, I think that there there are a few things. I think one, people tend to be um, more authentic when they're from the jump, when they're at home engaging, you know? And so I think some of that, the newness of a new community of, of peers um, can be really daunting for some people. Some people find it exhilarating or exciting or, or a non-issue, but for folks that are more um, reluctant to engage more vulnerably, I think there's something about being in your own space um, the, you know, I've, I've got young kids. And so I know what it means to have to, you know, uh, schlep people around and try to balance everything. So I think for folks that have, uh, responsibilities that would ordinarily prevent them from accessing care on a regular basis, or that might, uh, truncate their, their length of stay because they're needing to go handle conflicting uh, priorities. I think that it's, it's definitely worth a try. Um, I know that our, our clinical team have, uh, they've really, again, like done such a good job of, of meeting that need and, and learning how to operate within that space that the expertise is there, you know, from the the provider end. Um, yeah. And I think that the, there's something really benefit. I remember one of our dietitians saying, you know, is having a dietary session with one of, um, with one of his clients and he could hear the the food cooking in the pan while they were doing the session. I mean, just the the sort of real-time support in somebody's home environment can be really beneficial. There's no, there's no gap then. There's no translational process mm-hmm. between a brick and mortar facility and what folks are doing at home. Um, and that, that to me, I think is just a, it's a really beautiful opportunity for some folks. Right. I think that's, that's so true, right? Just being in their environment and there's this, that comfort, right? Um, for yeah. sure. Yeah. And that's something I, you know, I found too, people are saying, oh, it's so nice to be able to be in my safe space, in my comfy clothes, you know, to just be in not like the stuffy office, but, you know, maybe it was stuffy to them when they first started or something, right? Like, and not to have to schedule, you know, two hours just to get there and do the session and to get back, right? And it was, it was really just the time of the session, not extra. It's a lot less stress. Yeah, definitely. Definitely. Yeah. And if that gets folks to come in, then that's great. You know, if that's what gets people to to engage in treatment, then I love that. And then there are also programs, you know, Asana is still offering brick and mortar IOP and PHP for folks that, you know, I'm an extrovert by nature. And so I love being around other humans and I find that to be really energizing and comforting. And there's nothing better to me than community in that way. And so, um, you know, I would probably be somebody who, who leaned more towards a brick and mortar facility if I had ever needed to get services in some way, but 
Um, I also recognize the, the need for both. And, you know, we've had very little to no community spread of COVID in our facilities. We've done a tremendous job of keeping everybody safe and engaged. And, um, you know, our staff eats with clients still. We just do a plexiglass so that everybody's safe. And, you know, we've, we've been able to um, to work around the the risks and still engage in really meaningful treatment. And again, you know, continue to meet clients with where they're at in terms of their uh, comfort level with being out and about or in a treatment program or, or at home. So do you see, have you seen things shift and change as the pandemic has shifted and changed, like in terms of the severity or, or what people are coming in with in terms of their eating disorder symptoms? Yeah, it's a good question. I think that I we're seeing less isolation, right? So I think a lot of the the clients that we treat are actively engaged in a social life to the extent that their eating disorder is allowing them to be, you know, so that that part of things I think is really nice. Where I think we're struggling still is, um, you know, looking at when I sort of mentioned this earlier, but weighing out the need for taking a leave, weighing out the need for uh, spending uh, time away from school or job when when so many folks have have had to do that, you know, they were forced to do that because of the pandemic. Mm-hmm. And so that part of things, there's almost this sort of like rebound effect of, um, you know, everybody has been so uh, contained and so uh, out of control with with how their lives are looking that to ask somebody now to give up some of what they're working on or doing at home or, you know, that they've got going on in life in order to pursue their own health. It's a really hard sell. Um, delaying school, which is sometimes required, that's a really hard sell for somebody who's spent the last two, three years in virtual classrooms, you know. Just wondering your take on things. Do you think that, like you said, you had a big long waiting list. Do you think that that was by virtue of there was more awareness of mental health um, issues just in general. I mean, the pandemic really did, thankfully, that was one good offshoot. I think like we talked about mental health issues more and I don't know if people were more aware and then therefore more um, comfortable talking about what they were going through and seeking help. Or do you think really like the pandemic itself, there was something about it that people, if they had eating disorders, maybe before they kind of got triggered and they came back or, you know, they just, there was something about it that eating disorders became more prevalent during the pandemic. Yeah, I think yes to all of that. So I definitely think that we're now in a time where folks are, are so hooked into social media for better, for worse. Again, there's a lot of mental health focused social media now, right? So reducing stigma, folks talking about their own struggles, and so I think part of it definitely is a growing awareness and acceptance that mental health is a, is a health issue mm-hmm. and that um, we can talk about these things, you know, and that there are resources out there. There's, you know, um, thousands of testimonials on YouTube about somebody's mental health struggles and, you know, sort of t- giving uh, language to all of that. There's, there's so many different avenues. Um, celebrities talking about their own, you know, experiences and whatnot. So I think that's definitely part of it, just in terms of both the stigma and also the awareness, giving people language for it. But then also when when we talk about the character profile of folks struggling with an eating disorder, again, somebody who's really struggling to manage their own anxiety or depression and are looking for a sense of relief. Well, gosh, you know, the, the pandemic caused anxiety and depression for all of us. And so when we think about people who are predisposed to an eating disorder or who, you know, have that um, unfortunate convergence of, of these, all these factors, of course, 
right? Of course, we're going to see more suffering, more struggling. Of course, we're going to see people engaged in more self-monitoring um, and, uh, you know, introspection and, and self-awareness than, uh, or, you know, body awareness than maybe they would have. Um, and reclaiming a sense of control when the world got out of control, um, all of us, right, were wanting and craving for a, a greater sense of control. And when the only thing you can control is what you're eating, what your body looks like, how you treat your own, you know, your own um, sort of health, then of course that becomes really, really attractive. And quite frankly, a really probably uh, um, effective distraction tool when everything else seems to be crumbling around, crumbling around and now we don't we don't want that for anybody, but we know that eating disorders do serve a purpose, right? Otherwise, people wouldn't be, you know, unfortunately uh, falling prey to them. So, yeah, I think all of those things happened, and and I also think that, um, you know, perhaps for some folks they've been putting off treatment, and this was the time to do it. Now that they didn't have school and work commitments, or you know, there there certainly could be a small population population of folks who capitalized on the sort of slowing down of things in order to take care of their own health. Right. No, as you said, lots of different factors that led to all this. And, you know, I personally think it's fantastic that there was you said, more awareness about mental health issues. So I, the more we talk about it, I think the better. Um, and I, I appreciate you talking about how there's more availability of treatment just because there's been this open door to virtual treatment, right? There's more availability, there's more access. Um, I think that is one thing that's been a benefit. So. Yeah. Sure. Yeah. And to get payers to to sign on too, you know, that they'll, they'll be covering these things is just a, a really solid step in the right direction, I think, for where we really ultimately need to go, which is to elevate behavioral health care to the same level that medical health care is elevated and to, to increase access and reduce stigma and, um, you know, to increase evidence-based practices and quality care across the whole country. I mean, there's, there's still a lot of work to be done. Um, and in some ways, I think COVID has hyper sped up some of our growth in that area. There are, of course, monumental backslides, right, in in terms of you know, the mental health of Americans. But um, in some respects, hopefully, my hope is at least that some of that infrastructure is now in place that we can continue to build on. Right. And I just kind of tangential to that. So, you know, virtually, um, if somebody's not in your state, how how did that work? How does that work for you with virtual treatment? And so complicated, yeah. yeah. So with the the early parts of the pandemic, and actually, you know, for a good solid probably year and a half, two years, uh, states had relaxed their um, protocols. So folks could so you know as long as there are executive orders in place, folks could across um, operate across state lines in order to increase access to to mental health services, which was really great. Mm-hmm. And so we operated in that way. In the meantime, I don't, I can't speak to other providers, but what Alsana was doing is steadily getting their clinicians licensed in multiple states, mm. which is exactly what you have to do. It's a logistics nightmare in terms of paperwork and uh, application fees and all the, you know, getting everything all submitted. But ultimately, that's what you have to do. Okay. Yeah, I was just curious because I know it's shifting and changing, and that was something that was. I wish it would have stayed personally. <laughs> yeah, it was. <laughs> Yeah, we're all sort of, um, you know, manically uh, looking out for the executive order end dates and uh, uh, extensions and all of that, because we just knew that this meant people, you know, people getting access to her or not. 
And yeah. so it was just the sort of feverish process of making sure that we could stay operational and, and meet the need. And um, and we work quite a bit, you know, we, we, we definitely capitalized on our ability to do that and um, got a lot of people, the support, you know, the recovery support that they needed. That's great to know. So anyone listening? Yes. If you need tips, <laughs> right. we, we learned all the things the hard way. So you know, happy right. to share any wisdom. Yeah. Well, um, so if anyone does want to know more about the treatment Alsana offers or, you know, find you, uh, how can they do that? Yeah. Our website is of course a great first stop. Um, but, uh, folks can always reach out to me directly. Um, any of our leadership team directly, we, um, are, we are team players and want everybody to help increase access to care and help everybody succeed in their recovery trajectory and their process. And so whatever we can do to help boost the whole industry and the field, we're really happy to do. So, um, yeah, I would definitely encourage for anybody that has other questions or, um, you know, wants to connect to reach out to me directly and, um, yeah, be happy to, to connect. Awesome. Well, Heather, thank you so much. This has really been a good conversation. It's been long overdue and uh, just really appreciate it. So, and I hope anyone listening who's just wondering how to access care virtually, um, you know, maybe you're in a rural area or something, just know it's available. So it's available. Yeah. Take advantage. All right. Well, thank you again so much. Really appreciate your time. Thanks, Christina. This podcast is designed to provide accurate and authoritative information in regards to the subject matter covered. It is given with the understanding that neither the host, the publisher, or the guests are rendering legal, accounting, clinical, or any other professional information. If you want a professional, you should find one.